1: you'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: My name is Gwen, and this is What's Up Next Podcast. Hi, my name is Michelle from the band and blog, Savvy History, and this is the What's Up Next Podcast.
0: Hey, this is Vincent from Total Life Freedom, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to
2: What's Up Next, where your
1: hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
3: Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. Hey, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we have three esteemed guests today. They're going to be answering the question, does money and creativity go together? And so we'll each have them go through and give a quick introduction, and then we will just pull on that thread for the next few minutes. So Gwen, do you mind going first, please?
4: I would love to. My name is Gwen. I run a blog, Fiery Millennials, and I absolutely think that there is a place for creativity with money.
3: All right. Thanks for joining us once again. Michelle, can you give us a quick intro, please?
2: Yeah, I'm Michelle from the band and blog Savvy History. I really love studying creative psychology and I see a large intersection between creative psychology and people who pursue financial independence.
3: Interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that because I don't think that's what people would first think about. So Vincent, how about you? Let's give a quick introduction and then we will just dive right into the conversation.
0: Yeah, hi, I'm Vincent. I run the Total Life Freedom and the Business of Photography Academy, both mastermind communities. Um, I wrote the book Freelance to Freedom, and it's about using photography to create a life of time, location, and money freedom. So, absolutely, creativity and money go together.
1: All right, Gwen, I want to start with you. And I have to admit, I'm stealing this question from one of my previous episodes. If you no longer had to work and had no other responsibilities, how would you spend your days?
4: I would probably spend my days reading, playing video games, doing some of my hobbies like stained glass and quilting and working out and just generally enjoying life. Oh, you know, maybe volunteering a little bit here and there. Yeah.
1: Michelle, I'd ask you the same question. If money and your job no longer was a concern, what would you do from day to day?
2: I feel really lucky to say that I have created a life I don't feel like I have to take much of a vacation from. I would add in more songwriting is the one thing I would say. I really, really love to write and I love combining that input and output cycle of reading and writing. So I'd read more books and I'd be writing more songs.
1: And Vincent, I'm going to add a caveat for you here. If your wife and kids were out of town and you didn't have to work for a whole week, what would you spend your time doing?
0: Oh wow! Wife and kids are out of town. I don't know what I'd do in that situation because honestly, they're gone for two hours, and I'm like, "What? What do I do with this time?" <laughs> um, I'm like, Michelle, we've got there, and we get to do what we want to do every day, and everything we do is built around that. We're very big proponents of the eighty twenty rule, where you do the best you can with what you do best, and that's this is what we do. So I don't, I don't really do anything I don't want to do, and I think that's a key to our life at this point. But that that wasn't always the case.
1: So tell me what some of the things you do on a regular basis are now that you really enjoy. Those choices you make now.
0: I love conversations. I love deep conversations. That's why I love being here. I, like what basically what happened was while we were building the photography business, you know, it's been going on for years. I loved getting into conversations, doing things like this, and I remember saying, man, this would be cool to do for a living, right? Wouldn't it be cool to be able to so I get to do this for a living now. So that, that's basically what we transferred to. So be able to coach people to be able to really just ask tough questions, make people uncomfortable and say, ask things that other people are afraid to ask because they don't want to, you know, lose the client. I'm not concerned with losing the client. I'm concerned with getting to a certain spot. It's what I would do if I wasn't working. It's what I do when I am at my in-laws. Anyway, I'm asking those questions. So, you know, you get to kind of live that life that you want to do the work, So I don't consider it work. So
1: it sounds like when I listen to what all three of you say, there's some definite creativity going on there. Gwen, you're talking about stained glass. Michelle, you're talking about songwriting. Vincent, you're talking about having those deeper conversations with people around you. So Gwen, I was looking at your blog today in preparation for this conversation, and I noticed that you have a tagline for your blog posts of creativity. And there was another one that was crafts. So I'm like, great, I'm going to go click on these tags, I'm going to find all of your posts about creativity and crafting, etc. And I go to do this and I hit the tag and it comes up with one article. And what is the name of the article? Life After Fi. So tell me a little bit about this. Certainly creativity is important to you. It plays a role in what you want to do, but it's not something that comes up over and over again in your blog.
4: Yeah. And honestly, the reason for that is the last couple of years, I really haven't been allowing myself to explore that creative side of me. I have been doing other things which certainly require some bit of creativity, running a podcast, as you know has a little bit of creativity involved with it and how you're going to craft the episodes together and who's going to be on it and what's the overall theme, you know. So there's there's a little bit of creativity there, but it wasn't the kind of creativity that really, you know, gets my neurons firing. So yeah, it, it's something that I have definitely made deliberate strides in putting back into my life. I have multiple friends who are expecting cute little babies or I have already promised babies. They have already had the babies and I've already promised their quilts and haven't made them yet. And I think the oldest baby is about two and a half now. So clearly it's been a while. So I I want to exercise my creative skills with fabric in this case and give back to my friends a little bit.
1: Did you feel like creativity was something that was missing in your early financial independence journey?
4: In my early journey, when I first started out, it wasn't because I had space to do my creative endeavors. But then as I got more involved with the financial independence journey, the creativity definitely fell by the wayside.
1: So Vincent, this is an interesting duality to me. From reading your story, it sounds like your career actually started with creativity, right? Photography is a very creative venture. Yet, am I right in saying that in the beginning or somewhere towards the beginning, you realized that the creativity itself wasn't enough?
0: Oh, I think with a lot of artists it isn't. There's a really difficult academy between art and money, and I know a lot of artists that struggle financially. And it is, and they're great artists in the photography world. I'm stunned how often there are photographers that are fantastic, fantastic at the art, but they're terrible at business. And I think they feel like you know they feel like a sellout if they make money. They feel like they're they're screwing somebody over if they make money. Is the poor, you know, artist. It's the starving artist type of thing. You know, we came to the point where it was like we're having a baby and I'm making $15 an hour. And I was literally the best in my field where we were and I was making nothing. And, you know, my dad said to me, he goes, he goes, you have a skill, but you're not using it correctly. He goes, you should start a business. I felt wrong about starting a business. I should be doing this. And so we started a business and that's when I realized I got to study the business side of it, not the art side of it anymore, because that's why I studied forever. And I think a lot of artists don't go there, and they struggle for really long. So it is a tie-in that I think is so important to be able to do the art that you really want to do.
1: Yeah, and I remember about reading your story. At some point, you were working as a journalist, and you won a rather vaunted award, and you were going in for your raise that year, and you got 3%. And that was kind of stunning, being that you had almost got to the top of your field. And what that meant is you got a 3% raise. How did that feel?
0: Oh, it felt like it was hard. I mean, it was in June and our first baby, who's about to be 14, was about to be a month later, was going to be born. And I looked out in the newsroom and I realized right then and there that this was all wrong. This is over. I can't raise my family this way. So it's really hard because I feel like I'm giving up, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel like I'm selling out. By going into, you know, we got to start a business. But what I learned, and this is the main thing, we became more creative the more successful we became financially. Because I didn't have to do anything for somebody else. I got to do it for ourselves. And as here's what happened. Even in the wedding world, the cheaper our prices were, the more demanding the clients were. The more they nitpicked. The more expensive we got. I'll never forget the first one that was a really high end. And she looked at us and she was like, do your art. Those were her words exactly. Do your art. And I was like, thank you. So I got to be, so I got better because I got to just be creative and the money was better. And I said, I'll never go back to that way again. So that was the big deal for us.
1: So Michelle, do artists have trouble asking for money for creating art? Is there a problem there? Does it not feel right?
2: For me personally, I've struck many deals over the years and been able to ask for money. The part that I struggled with the most, and I think a lot of artists would say this, is the marketing part. So I've heard recently that an online success plan might include 80% marketing and 20% content creation. And in my full time as a musician, I was doing 80% creation of songs, 10% marketing, maybe, and having a terrible experience with it, feeling like I was pushing ideas or not sure what my role was with my image or my branding or anything like that. And then my other 10% was just spent staring off into space with enormous anxiety about the future. So... Now my risk management plan is that I went and found a day job that I absolutely enjoy. And while that's not that exciting of a story to many people, it has expanded my creative life tremendously. And that is kind of why I've been creeping on Gwen's story. It's really great to meet Gwen today because her story lines up with that. And I've always felt close to you, Gwen, because I know you were in Des Moines and in Minneapolis and I'm in the Midwest. So I kind of have followed what you've done. And I loved watching that just dipping of your toe into the entrepreneurial world and For people to say that it's okay that it wasn't for me or that I'm going to leverage my finances until I get to the point again where I don't need to care whether people like me or not. Like right now, we're around a very nice digital roundtable and I'm meeting a lot of you for the first time, but it's such a relief to know that I don't have to care if you like me or not. And I mean that in the nicest way. And I've established that now with my songwriting and it is amazing. I really struggled with a lot of mental health issues in my early 20s because I had the vision to become a full-time musician and I was able to do it. But then as a touring artist and on the horizon, this picture of possibly having a baby, it caused my mind to freak out because the way that I made my money was touring. And I was not willing to be a touring mother musician, even though there are a lot of women that do that and pull it off successfully. I knew it wasn't for me. So I just think the idea of finances fitting with, in with creativity is that even if you don't fully pursue financial independence or you're not in the position to have that anywhere near in your future, like for me, I'm aiming for the age 55 and I'm like, yeah, that'll be <laughs> early, right? And I'm a very happy person with a job where I'm a teacher and a songwriter. But the way that I was even to make that career transition from a songwriter to a teacher was because I had a cushion. And I think that creative freedom, life freedom. Even if you're not able to become financially independent, you can learn so much from the community itself about those ways to navigate yourself in your career and in your career choices.
1: Gwen, much of what Michelle says actually also makes me think a little bit about your path. Talk a little bit about solopreneurship and how it felt once you left your job and started getting into endeavors like stained glass and Etsy, and maybe even talk a little bit about the difficulty of marketing.
4: Yeah, uh, to be honest, I found that the entire thing sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it was terrible. Like I was so stressed out by the thought that I had to support myself on this. And the rental property took up a good chunk of my cash cushion right at the very beginning. And so like my sense of security was kind of gone. And I just basically shut down from the stress. You know, I had nine months in which to do nothing but stained glass. And do you know how many pieces that I made? I think I made three. And one of them to be honest, was a pretty kick-ass Deadpool face, but like I had nine months to do it, and I I didn't do anything. My creative juices weren't flowing because I was so stressed out about trying to make it on that and do the marketing,
2: all that hustle, like just terrible. Yeah, I spent three years, Gwen, three to five years somewhere in there. Just the fact that I even talk about it and kind of lost track of time because I was able to do anything I wanted each day with my life. So I felt like I knew what it was like to be retired when I went back to work. And I realized I'm just someone that thrives on a schedule. Now, granted, I was very young. And I think if I ever found myself in an entrepreneurial role again, I would know myself a lot better. But there's just that idea of I cut my expenses bare bones. I was able to live on $1,000 a month and I made more than that. So then I learned how to save half my income. And I was like, yeah, I can save half my income, but it's because I live on barely half of what the average American lives on. But anyhow, so I'd wake up and I'd have my free Wi-Fi from the library that I didn't need to get there to try to advertise my shows or my music until 10 o'clock. And my schedule was open. I was able to read books. But like you said, there's something about being busy. And sometimes there's a momentum with being busy that is underrated unless you try out that retirement life.
1: So Vincent, I think a lot of people listen to your story and they say, okay, he was into photography and then he became a businessman and glaze over the fact that that's not an immediate nor an easy transition. What was it like in the beginning? Did you fall into being a businessman and it fit you comfortably?
0: I was the worst. I mean, everything wrong, everything you can imagine, we didn't know. You don't just walk into that. And that's where I think a lot of people that start and they get frustrated with it. It's like there is a learning curve that goes with it. And so often, like I feel like the oddball in this conversation right here because I'm like, I'm so unemployable, it's ridiculous. Like, I'll be fired at 902. Of a Monday morning of any job that I have to walk into, I cannot have somebody else tell me what to do any longer. It's just not possible. But at that point, but I felt that even then, even in the beginning, the first two years of the business, as many mistakes as we made, bad retainers, bad conversations, everything I did wrong, I just knew I had to make it happen because I couldn't go back to that. So I think that fear of having to answer to somebody else and then go in traffic and commute and somebody else is, and then wait until I have to put in for jo- a vacation in July that somebody else might have already claimed in back in October. I'm like, no, I want to go away when I want to go away. So, no, but I've always been contrarian like that since I was, you know, five years old. So I kind of, I knew it never would work for me. So the business part of it, I just needed to learn. I just needed to study. And, but I studied the art. I studied photography for 13 years. That was just my time to study business. And I knew I was taking lumps.
1: Gwen, do you think that having the safety net of being able to go back to your job made the art all the more difficult? Was it hard to be creative when you knew you could go back to a nine to five with a salary?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like here I am elated when I get a $5 Etsy pattern sale. And I, you know, worked for like four hours to create that pattern. And my effective pays, you know, like a dollar twenty-five an hour. And I'm like, why am I even wasting my time doing this when I can go back to work and get paid forty dollars an hour? And to be under completely less stress and actually have like more time in my day because I'm not wasting so much of it. Yeah, it made it really hard to bear down and focus when I was like, well, I'm just gonna go back and go back into my high paid IT job. So Michelle, you
1: found a day job. But in some senses, doesn't that take away from that starving artist thing, right? Don't we have to be hurting to create good art? Having that day job, having the security, does it take something away from the creativity?
2: I don't believe in that myth anymore. I think when I was younger, I certainly did because I had a rough upbringing per se. Like I had a lot of mental health struggles. I found myself, you know, hospitalized a couple of times for anorexia. And Through my songwriting, I was able to process all that, but I clinged to that idea for a long time. And the thing about songwriting is it's not like you create it once and then it's done. You are put on a stage basically to cryptically tell your life story over and over again, and you repeat the song over and over again, and I just didn't want to hear my own life that way anymore. So... It's kind of interesting that once I established a day job, I had far more creative ideas where I wasn't so stuck on my own life because I had that input of variety. Being a teacher, I encounter a lot of different ideas. There's the craft of teaching itself, and then there's also the content that I would encounter. And I started this idea of writing songs from the perspective of overlooked people in history because I found it a lot easier to push their ideas or kind of Contribute to that edutainment idea, that idea of that mix of education and entertainment. And I believe my ideas became a lot healthier. They became a lot more valuable to anyone else that would encounter them. And I appreciate that time in my early life. I don't think I could have gotten to the healthy relationship I have with creativity now without going through that process of all of those mental health struggles and writing all that music that had more of a root in psychology. I probably, you know once say that I regret it. And I understand artists who say that a lot of, I don't know, explosion of ideas can come from a dark place, but I don't buy into it anymore. I've seen a lot of people thrive when they reach their healthiest state, whether that's a healthy state financially or mentally.
1: Vincent, let's talk about this idea of thriving in a healthy state. I like to tell a story about when I was an art mogul. For a short period of time, fell in love with a special kind of artwork. And I wanted to buy a bunch of it and put it On my walls, but it was really expensive. So, I through eBay met a bunch of people and found a way to get that same artwork that I really liked, but I could get it for a third of the price. So, I started an art business and I started selling all of this artwork, and something happened about a year in. When I commoditized it, it no longer brought me joy. Like the artwork itself became just paper. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if some of the same thing doesn't happen with creativity. Photography for you, I imagine, started as a very creative venture. Now it's a business. Has that taken anything away from the joy of creation?
0: I don't really even shoot as much. I like to pivot. For me, when things get normal, I kill it. I, I just do. I, I'm like, okay, and, and it's really kind of funny because it's like you have this business you've built up and it's doing really well. I'm like, okay, what's next? And I remember the day it happened. I remember the day we did a wedding. I was so tired. I was going through an adrenal fatigue. I don't even remember shooting. And I came back and I'm like, well, I, we blew it. We blew it. We're gonna get a big, you know, criticism. They're gonna, and she gets back to us. and She goes, you got everything. This was an amazing. And I remember I said to Elizabeth, that should have been the day that we could have cruised, you know, the rest of our life. Like, I was like, I'm done. When it's no longer a challenge to me, when it's no longer scary, I don't want to do it anymore. So I'm constantly in that mode of what's the next thing because I need that challenge. I need that beginner mindset to do something different.
1: And is it safe to say that you also add in creativity to whatever you take on next? So the act of building a business can be a very creative venture.
0: Oh, it went to writing a book. I have no idea how to write a book. I'm not a writer, but I'm going to go, I'm going to fail. And I was talking to another, got a podcast the other day. And I was like, when I got into photography, the main thing was, I know, I know I'm going to fail because I failed at everything. I was bad at school. I failed in college. But I said, at least I'm going to fail at something cool. And that's what I try to take into everything that we're going to do is failing at something cool and then hopefully making it out of failure.
2: Yeah, I've encountered this feeling that my life is really comfortable lately. I quit songwriting and I quit all that entrepreneurial stuff for what I believe was the wrong reason. So ever since I started just blogging or kind of making myself uncomfortable by doing something like this and kind of feeling that anxiety in the pit of my stomach before it started, but now I'm feeling fine. Everybody's cool. It's great. The technology's working, right? But just to introduce that idea of not being comfortable again because I didn't like how safe I was playing it. That whole idea of I know I could be really frugal, I could coast till 55, I could put all my creative ideas off to the side because I actually ended up studying creativity uh, as someone who got my degree in gifted education. So, in gifted education, you take a couple of classes about gifted psychology and encounter some of these theories. And I immersed myself in them. I was reading all these books about them, but I found I myself, as a person, stopped. I thought that my role was going to be to offer. My help to others only, but in that I compromised myself and for years didn't write a song, didn't do anything on the side. And I just got tired of that story. I think I started losing respect for myself. So for me now, even just starting the blog and starting to talk and do interviews again is igniting something within me. And like he said, if it gets boring, I'll just ruin it. There's something inside me that will always run in the direction of, you know, I think of creativity as like you're willing to run into a house on fire while everybody else is running out. It's not going to make sense to the others watching your life. There's certain things you do that don't even make sense to yourself at the time, but it's because you want that stimulation. There's something inside your mind that thrives on the unknown and discovering it and interacting with it.
1: So it sounds like we don't want to be the starving artist. We don't want to be unhealthy. Yet to produce art, to be creative, we have to be somewhat uncomfortable. Gwen, now that you're back to a nine to five, how do you force yourself to run into a burning building? What ways are you becoming creative now?
4: To me, creativity is now an outlet instead of an obligation. And that makes all the difference to me, that mindset change where now I am at work and I have downtime between meetings and I literally have nothing to do. And... Uh, all right. That's an outlet to escape the boredom, you know? Or I come home and I'm like, "Uh, you know, I have some anger at that guy who cut me off in traffic on the way home, you know. I'm I'm going to get rid of my frustration by setting a quilt block perfectly and making all of the corners line up." Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's a, an escape for me now instead of feeling like I have to do it.
1: Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, how will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes, I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. and Monarch is so customer-focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. This episode of Earn and Invest is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com earn and get on your way to being your best self. Listen, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. And therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all your relationships I know because when I went to BetterHelp, one of the relationships I wanted help with was that with my father. You see, my father died when I was seven years old, and I had a lot of unresolved issues. My therapist at BetterHelp was actually really good at helping me talk about those issues and start to find answers that normally I would have tried to find with my father. But since he was no longer around, I had to find them on my own. And having a therapist was incredibly impactful in that journey. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot earn.
3: And so what I hear you talking about there, Gwen, is finding your creative space. And I think we all find that in a different kind of way, depending on our personalities. But I'm curious for those of you who are listening to this, who are probably like me and are classic engineers, very left-brained, very financial oriented, who would not consider themselves creative. How do you go about tapping into your creative space? Do you all guys have any thoughts on that? Because I'm the one not fitting in in this group, not Vincent, I can guarantee you.
2: It just makes me so sad anytime I hear people think that they aren't creative at all, because I think creativity is something that the brain does. It's something that the brain loves to do. To say you aren't creative is like saying that you don't breathe. It's just part of the way the human being is built. Now, that being said, there's interesting scientific evolutionary thoughts on creativity, such as why we find certain creative people attractive. And it's kind of rooted in that idea that they would have accumulated so many resources that it's like, oh, I solved the problem of I know what to eat. I have enough free time that I'm going to go learn the Dorian scale. (laughs) And it's funny to think that this evolutionary idea you know, I've never looked at myself being tricked that way, but I look at how I met my husband and I'm like, well, why did I find him attractive playing the guitar or the bass or whatever it was? Like, why do people find that attractive? So I'm always looking into that. And I just think creativity at its heart is problem solving. If you are a problem solver, you are creative. You are contributing something. You don't need to be sitting around with your paints out or your guitar, even though that's really cool. You know, I bet you are a creative person. You definitely are.
0: And I think also, we always think creativity in terms of art. And I think it doesn't always go. In, in terms of what Joe was just talking about with Paul, like financially, you can be creative in the way that you look at that. For me, photography, everybody's like, oh, you know, they'll go to Italy. Like, you got to see the landscapes. I'm like, I don't care. Like, that's <laughs> I care for like the beauty of it, but I don't care. for Photography-wise, that doesn't matter to me. The reason why I got into photography was access. I was a sports fan that wanted to photograph these games, I wanted to be on the sidelines and I wanted, I wanted to know what that was like. I wanted to, I could never make it as an athlete. I'm a five foot nine non athletic guy, right? I'm not, I'm not gonna be on, but I love sports. So I couldn't be on in the huddle. I became the guy that was just on the outside of it. I wanted to feel that. So I took that and then took that to photographing presidents of the United States and world leaders. And I wanted access to people that I could not normally get around. And I used photography and my camera to get in there to do that. And then I learned more creativity from that. So I don't think it's just a matter of can you do a beautiful piece of art that we see that as creativity. It is all around in what we do.
1: Gwen, let's talk a little bit about writing as creativity. I mean, we think of personal finance sometimes as a little bit bland and a little bit straightforward, but do you see that as a creative endeavor?
4: Absolutely. I find the best blogs are not the boring, like, here's how to optimize your 401k or, you know, maxing out your Roth IRA for five years, like blah, blah, blah. Charlie Brown's teachers, right? Like that's boring. But if you can craft uh, the information in such a way as to make it interesting and entertaining to people, they will not only want to read more of what you're writing, but they'll actually learn from what you're writing. And so it's to me writing a blog post isn't like, how do I get this information out there? It's how do I make it the most interesting thing for people to read?
2: And if it comes off a little funny, then I like it a little funny. Yeah, I would say practical life, learns from artistic endeavors and artistic endeavors learn from practical life. And my husband has seen that. He used to create a lot of physical art. Um, He doesn't have time for that anymore as a busy dad, but all of those muscles in his brain that he feels like he was exercising making art, he feels like he uses when he now remodels the house or is doing a deck project or something like that. So I think there's some interesting brain science with systemizing and empathizing. And systemizing is something I view a lot of people in the personal finance world as incredibly good at. So if they can mix that systemizing with the empathizing, which like you were saying, Gwen, is that idea of having a story that's relevant or a tie-in that makes it more human. Anytime I see those blogs that merge both of those, I'm just trying to learn from it and also just appreciating the experience myself because they were able to merge those two parts of our brains. Because it's systemizing and empathizing are a continuum in the brain.
1: So let's talk about this idea of systemizing and empathizing only in the sense that you talk about those on your blog, and that is not the typical thing personal finance people talk about, right? If you go to personal finance blogs, you're not going to see those type of descriptive words. Your byline is money meets creative living, that's different. How are people in the personal finance realm relating to your material? Do you find that it confuses them or do you find it draws them in because it's different?
2: I've had plenty of people just enjoy the tie-ins. Recently, I talked about like the six degrees of separation idea with Kevin Bacon, this idea that you could talk about movies, right? And every actor eventually is going to lead back to Kevin Bacon. It's a really old 90s idea. But I just think when you're talking about money, money just infiltrates our lives in so many different ways. And especially if you are an artist or if you are creative in different ways, money is everywhere. And you might get incredibly creative with money in order to budget for your meals or in order to figure out how to save for retirement on the side because you don't have a job that is doing your taxes for you and you don't have a job that is giving you a contribution into a retirement system. So I just think anytime that you can, you know, work out this open-mindedness about the two, you're getting on a good path that could be just a healthy place for yourself. And when I started my blog, I had a couple of assumptions that I haven't proven true or false to myself yet about the type of people attracted to financial independence. And I thought maybe this material would be interesting for them. So for example, the theory of positive disintegration is a theory about psychological development, and it tackles the idea of being different. It's in the realm of creative psychology, it addresses gifted individuals, but I definitely have more than a couple of problems with the word gifted, as Vincent probably does as well, uh, when it comes to schooling and the difference between high achievement versus individuals who follow their giftedness in a different way. But anyhow, so just that idea of positive disintegration, when I came across it, it's a five-stage psychological theory of personality development and how people end up unique. And it doesn't really have that much positive to say. It says a lot of people get stuck at level one or level two, and they don't move on. So I just thought, oh my goodness, it's so hard to be different. And I think financial independence, pursuing it, especially on an average income is something that can look incredibly odd to those around you. And how are you going to bust through those ideas that you have that are maybe holding you back or maybe making you even feel bad about yourself? Michelle, have you read a book called The Gifted Adult by Mary Elaine Jacobson?
4: Uh, I'm halfway through reading it and it is very interesting because I identify with a lot of what she has to say so far.
2: Yeah. There's so many great books out there. So it's kind of like, I know that I'm not a great personal finance numbers person. I'll share my own numbers from my own life. I know enough to run my own personal finance ship but I'm not interested in running anyone else's. But what I can tie in is a lot of thoughts about the struggle of being different. And a couple of things about, if you're looking that up, his name was Dabrowski and his theory was really formed during the 1940s. And just seeing this world be crazy because of obviously World War II, he came up with this idea about positive maladjustment, as in if you are maladjusted to a society that looks crazy in the first place, you might be positively maladjusted. And I just found that idea and I thought, okay, so if you absorb society, you're a really high sensitive person, you absorb everything around you like a sponge and you kind of become crazy. Are you just a reflection of being a really sensitive person of your environment? And if you can get yourself in the correct environment, then can you find yourself thrive. There's also this idea of like the personalized other as in the six people closest to you. And everybody's heard that, like you're the average of the six people closest to you, like that they become the voice in your head. The way you are speaking to yourself sometimes can be the way that you have been spoken to. And just taking that idea further and writing about it and fleshing it out for myself, I found people do respond pretty well and it is resonating with a lot of people attracted to this movement.
3: Well, Vincent, I'd like to actually pull on that a little bit with you because I know you run at least two masterminds. And so what you're doing is you're running communities on the very subject of what she was just talking about, about gathering people around you who you want to be like or you want to improve your group. First of all, where did you go about starting that in the first place? And what have you learned as a process of that tying into what Michelle was just talking about?
0: I joined a couple of different other groups because I I wanted to be part of something like that. I wanted to be part of a group where we could learn from each other. And every time I, I went, it was a bunch of great groups, but just as it goes with my personality, it never quite fit what I wanted it to be. Just like school, just like work. So, you know, this is what I talk to people about. If you can't find what you want, create it. So that's what I did. I took what I saw and I was like, this is what I want. So I'm like, I'm going to go make it. And everybody says you're crazy, you know, like, which I was just talking about in terms of like, if you're the crazy one out of a crazy society, like maybe you're doing pretty good. To paraphrase, that's how I feel like. I felt like I was always the one. I didn't get everybody else. Everybody thought I was weird, but I felt like I was right on. I knew where I was going, even in school. So like, I wanted to create that community and I wanted to make that. It's funny, as we talk about employment, what I like to do in our group is like to raise the unemployment rate because I'm trying to get people to leave their jobs because they literally come in and they're stuck and they have this thing that they want to do, but they basically, what it comes down to is they need permission. They don't have permission to do it. And I've heard that so many times, like you've given us permission to do it. And basically what stops them is the fact that they don't have the time to put into their creative venture, which generally is somewhat creative on their own because the amount of time they put into their job and they, and they just know if you transfer this time to here, It'll work. So that's a lot of what we do in there.
1: So Gwen, I want to expand on what Vincent said a little bit with a question. It seems like we've talked a little bit about creativity as something you do in your free time. And we talk about it sometimes as being a hobby. But I think what Vincent is saying is that maybe we need to be given the permission to be more creative in everything we do or in our jobs itself? I mean, which is it? Is it a hobby? Is it something we do in our free time? Or should it be permeating our day-to-day life and our jobs?
4: I think if you can arrange it, creativity in every facet of your life is optimal. However, I would say that The world doesn't really want the vast majority of people to be creative. The world operates on a system and we need, you know, cogs in the wheel to keep the system going. And creativity is sometimes actually frowned upon and discouraged. You know, like Vincent in school, they didn't want you to learn on your own way and be creative. They wanted you to learn the way that everybody else had to learn, right? I am fortunate that the career that I have chosen, the niche that I have made for myself in IT is one that allows me to be intensely creative. I have to think on my feet and come up with solutions like that because there are million dollar meetings waiting on me to figure out a solution. So that kind of like spontaneity and creativity comes out in that aspect in my career, which also I would say fosters my creativity levels outside of work as well.
1: Michelle, speak to what Gwen just said. I mean, does that resonate with you that society pushes down some of our creativity?
2: I definitely look at my own history and feel that. I feel like my anorexia itself, it was a way to crystallize and epitomize Western culture and that drive, that competitiveness, that need to always be outdoing yourself. And When I had that as an adolescent, I was thought of as a very creative child. And I remember my teachers or my mom or people saying that, but it was kind of almost as if it's like a euphemistic way of saying she doesn't follow directions very well. And when I hit middle school and my anorexia came in, my creativity left, but I could be like the perfect student. And I feel like I just absorbed all that capitalism, all that factory-like behavior, and I was able to be a robot. So for me personally, I wanted, like I said, when I do these songs for myself, I'm still sorting out all of these things within myself that are about throwing that off, because I like the highs and the lows of creativity. Aside from the task itself, when you do the task itself, and you're being creative, you have so many highs and lows within that. But there's also the overall highs and lows in the person's life. And I think that's what life is about is those challenges and those ups and downs and also tragedy plus time equals comedy. Like I'm able to look back at so many things I've done that were silly or so many things in my husband's own life that were just outright bizarre, you know, and I'm able to laugh at them now. For example, my husband, he Uh, graduated school early and he was scooped up by a mainstream record producer that produced some of the biggest bands in history. He thought he was going to be a millionaire. His parents thought he was going to be a millionaire. He had no backup plan whatsoever. And then I met him at 22 and he wanted to be a gardener and he wanted nothing to do with the music industry. The music industry had spit him out and it was like, oh honey, we have a couple of things to work out here because you've been through the biggest highs and lows that probably a creative person can go through. And here I'm tagging up with you and I want nothing to do with any middleman. I'm going to be an independent artist and we're going to do this thing and we're going to get to keep all the money that comes in and we're not going to have to be a brand of any kind and nobody's going to tell us how to dress or what to wear and we're going to own this thing. So just those highs and lows, like that's a story. like That's a life I can look back on. And while it might not be pretty in the moment, I'm having a good time because we take on these things and we do them and we can laugh later and cry in the moment.
0: Yeah. The thing that I hear when I hear this is I think back to my childhood. I think back to people that might be going through this right now, people that are listening, maybe they're struggling with it. And nobody ever told me I was creative. And I think we're talking about creativity as adults. I was just told I was different. That later on, you're creative, right? So I want the people that are being told that they're different, or that they don't follow the rules and that they might be wrong about it. I love that. Like, my friend, that they have a kid that always does things the beat of his own drum, and she's so frustrated because, you know, it's not going along with school. I'm like, he is going to rule the world. He is in great, and he's nine years old. But you can see the leadership in him. You can see the creativity. You can see the way he thinks differently than everybody else that follows the rules. And they're so worried because school tells you that it's wrong, And when I look back on it, I'm so glad school did that to me because it gave me the wherewithal to realize I'm not wrong. And when we have more and more people to realize, it's not that you're different or you're wrong. You're very creative and you have skills that other people don't have. And you're going to wind up hiring the people that are getting A's later on in life.
4: I look back on my schooling years and I was somewhat told that I was creative. My mom definitely fostered that at home with teaching me a variety of, of hobbies and things to do there. But I escaped from my real world. I buried myself away from the real world in books. I read books all the time. I was knee-deep in fantasy fantasy. Nine times out of 10, because it was a better way of living than to have the world, you know, constantly push me down. So I think it's really interesting how the three of us reacted in very different ways to kind of the same stigma and pressure from society.
1: Michelle, is this kind of back to the theory of systemizing versus empathizing, that maybe society systemizes us and what we really need is more empathy?
2: That's interesting. I've always looked at it on the individual level, but you're right. Just all the systems in place and how can we bring more empathy into the systems and into finance, especially like when I think of, like I said, I have this past part of my life where I was actually called a robot. Like that was my nickname in middle school and people said it for fun. Like I was able to hide my anorexia pretty well. Like nobody, I wasn't talking about it or anything, but I was called the robot and that always stuck with me. I was like, what was going on there that I just absorbed this society and I missed out on so much, so much living, so much laughter. And I just learned from that on a personal level. But you're right to reflect it back at society and say, how do we introduce more empathy? How do we introduce more laughter, more human connection to all of these things that we are doing as we interact online or even interact in these larger cities inside these systems?
1: So Vincent, tell me what happens when you're running these masterminds and you give people permission to be creative. You give them permission to become unemployed and use their creativity. How do they respond?
0: I think there's a lot of pushback. There's not too much pushback because they're there for a reason. This is not like, like Gwen's telling them that that's not what she wants, right? Gwen's not somebody that would enjoy it because Gwen's saying, I love what I'm doing. I don't want to leave this. This is for people that want to leave it. This is for people that know that there's something different and they're stuck because they did what everybody told them to do. They went to college then they wake up at 35 and they have two kids and a wife and they go, what happened? I have to get on the train and do this crappy job, but I know I've got this other thing that everybody tells me I'm great at. And I make some money at it on the side, but I only work nights and weekends. I'm like, well, if you could make a half of your salary working nights and weekends, what do you think you could do if you didn't commute? and you didn't have, were bogged down, you didn't, and you could take a three-hour lunch with somebody that's an influencer, and then they start thinking about it, and when you can bring people like that together that have done it, it gives them, like you said, you know, I, I think it was Michelle said, you're at, the average of the people, it's Jim Rohn, the average of the five people you hang around with. When you see that more and more, you go, maybe I can do this, because their whole life, they've been told they can't, and then they're around people like their in-laws that tell them that they can't. So they need somebody that's done this to say, I can And when they do it, there's like a a light bulb that goes off.
1: Michelle, did people in your life, your family say, what are you doing with this band and singing thing? Why don't you get a real job?
2: It wasn't my family necessarily. That's a little complex. They're just really different. They didn't prioritize creativity or anything like that. My dad, both of his parents passed away before he was 14. So I think he was just always in a survival mode and in the idea of I'm going to accomplish things and it is what it is. He was just proud that I could make money, no matter how I figured out how to make money. What was interesting was my peers because I did play the system. I graduated at the top of my class and the five other people that I graduated with all went out no lie, to become doctors or lawyers. That's what they were. And here was me trying to be the songwriter and they were looking at me like, what is she doing? Because of course, it didn't work right away. I found myself working in a factory at one point. I found myself working in a Walmart. And when you're comparing your life to these peers and you're like, goodness, we all launched from the same launch pad. How did I get here? Like what type of risk was I taking when I prioritized this idea of creative living young? And that became complex for me because you just see traditional success and you maybe know that you're a person that could walk that path or could have walked that path. And instead you chose the really strange and abstract ideas in your mind. And you're like, but I'm gonna follow these things wherever they go because I'm just wired that way. Right. So, Gwen,
1: how did people react when you followed the voices in your head and left your <laughs> job? But I imagine that there was quite a bit of pushback from some peers and family members.
4: Honestly, my friends were mostly people that I had made through the financial independence community. So, pretty much everybody was overwhelmingly supportive, which honestly, I wish people hadn't really been so supportive because then I, you know, might have made a different decision, but I probably wouldn't have anyway. But my parents have always reacted to me doing anything. With a lot of hesitation and presentation of worst-case scenarios. So they were like, oh, well, you know, like, you could never find a job again, like you could be broken homeless, you know, like they made sure every time I did something to present the absolute worst option, you know, like, oh, your car could get repossessed if you take out this car loan. Or if you join the military, you could get dishonorably discharged and you'll find a job again, you know, like so they always presented the worst case scenarios to me up front. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm going to do everything in my power to avoid that. So I I think I'll be all right. Like, I think everything will be okay. I don't think it's going to come to that point. And if it looks like it's going to get to that point, I'm going to figure out a way to bail and not have it happen like I did going back to work.
3: So I'd like to return this conversation to the original question is, does money and creativity go together? And I think all of you indicated the answer was yes going into this. So how does it go together? And for those listening, what would you suggest for our listeners to take away from this? Allow each of you to answer that question. I'll start with Vincent.
0: Yeah, I, I listened to Michelle talk about like being at the top of her class and then the pressure of that because, you know, everybody's doctors. I had the opposite. I learned on the day before graduation that I was graduating. There was no expectations for me, absolutely none. So it was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life because I had carte blanche to do what I wanted to do. There was no like, oh, you really should go to school for this. Like, no, you should just try to survive is what it was. You know, if you could just make it to 22. So when I was at 22, I was still alive. And that's when I kind of just got into photography because I was a thief. I dropped out of school five times. So it basically was like, okay, what do I want to do? What would be cool? And that's what photography was for me. And I wish more people had that opportunity because the creative part of it is what really got me to financial independence. Photography is what got us to starting our business, paying off all of our debt, paying off our house, quitting our job, and then creating the life exactly that we wanted. And then even taking me away from photography where it got to the point where I'm like, I really want to do the same rate that I did it. I don't, so I, now I do it more for fun and I do this stuff and this stuff will change at some point. But the idea that there were no expectations on me and I could just do what I want, I wish more people could have that so they could do the creative stuff that they wanted to do.
3: Yeah, the idea of choosing a profession and doing it for forty years, I think, is an outmoded concept. So I'm also curious, Michelle. You mentioned something a while ago about capitalism and being robotic. And what's so funny about capitalism is it requires creativity in order to create the businesses that make all this money. But then to maintain it, I guess we create these cogs and machines. So in kind of light of that question, we have to like somehow coexist in this world of capitalism, at least in the U.S. How do we make sense of that by managing our own money and also having creative outlets?
2: That's a very interesting million dollar question. I certainly don't have an answer for you. I'm just kind of observing. And for me personally, my comment would just be understanding finance doesn't make you less cool as an artist. That's my main message. Like you're not boring if you get good with money. You aren't suddenly buying into some system that gonna ruin your soul and turn you into who knows what the two work together. And the extremes that I had in my mind at one point are just embarrassing. And I have no problem talking about it and laughing at myself as I go through my own history as an artist. And I look into the future of the way of, okay, here are the things I can change. Here are the things that can't. I was born in this country. I live here. It's not going to change anytime soon. Even though there is geo-arbitrage, I'm not going to be one of those people. So how am I going to work with it? And yeah, I'm not boring. I'm just trying to get better with money.
3: You're certainly not boring. That was a perfect answer to a very difficult question. Well done. So Gwen, how about you? What are your thoughts? You know, you've played with a lot of different aspects of how to find employment while doing your creative outlets. Have you found that happy medium yet? Are you still searching?
4: I think I'm closer now than I have ever been in the past. Like I said, you know, when I went back into the working world after my solopreneurment time, I found a job and thought it would be a good fit and realized pretty quickly into it that it wasn't. But I stuck it out until I could figure out where I wanted to go from there. But I had that freedom and the power of already having a job when I was looking for jobs. So I interviewed with like four or five different places before I accepted this position that I have now because something just felt right about it. You know, I thought it would be a good fit. And so far it looks like it has been. So I wish that everybody got the chance to figure out exactly what they want to do and find a good place to work for or have that courage to strike out on their own and put that into there. Because I think, in this capital society you need two different kinds of people you need the ideas people and you need the implementation people. you need the creative people to spout off the crazy what- ifs what if we strap through rockets together and blast it off in the space and then you need other people who are your engineering you know practical implementation people to figure out how to put those ideas into action. So I think there's room for everybody in our society.
3: Michelle, uh, what is up next for you and for the audience? where can they find you in order to follow up more with your blog?
2: You can find me at SavvyHistory.com and Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, and hopefully YouTube soon at with the handle SavvyHistory. Up next for me, I hope to start a YouTube channel where I go back through my old blog posts and I try to grade them. If anybody wants to watch me grade my blog posts, that's one thing. I hope to record some songs about 1890s inventors, and I'm also <laughs> collecting some songs. I'd love to... Uh, If anybody listening wants to send me information about women in banking or in investing, my one rule is that they have to have passed away. I don't take on anybody that is still alive. That's way too hard, but I'll take on people that have passed away, especially I really like the 1800s.
3: I have never heard that answer before. I can guarantee you that. (laughs) So that is a truly creative answer. Uh, Gwen, how about you? Uh, Where can we find you and what is up next for you?
4: You can find me at my blog, Fiery Millennials. I recently decided to make a bunch of different changes in my life. So I left my podcast that I was doing, Fire Drill, and I got the new job and I am now dating somebody new and I'm moving in a couple of weeks to a new place that's closer to work locations and basically just trying to figure out what makes me happy and doing all the things that make me happy. That's what's up next.
3: That's awesome. And Gwen, I would like to say a personal thank you because you have been the most forthright with your journey and the fact that it hasn't gone completely to plan, I think makes it all the better because that's life, right? And that's we're all going through that and we resonate with that. So thank you for sharing and being willing to share and be vulnerable. Vincent, where can we find you and what is up next for you?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm simple. TotalLifeFreedom.com is the website. You can email me there. That's pretty much it. I don't do a whole lot on social media. It's just kind of silly dad jokes on Facebook or just kind of posting about our travels. But uh, yeah, I finally have a podcast come out. I said the podcast I was going to make was going to be called The Last Podcast Ever Made because that's what it was going to be. But I changed it. We've got enough pushback in terms of getting this done. So there'll be a podcast coming out next month and a half. We're planning our first conference for 2020, which is exciting and uh, just moving forward with the movement.
1: All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Vincent from Freelance to Freedom, Michelle from Savvy History, and Gwen from Fiery Millennials.
3: If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways Opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word next to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. Boom. Well done.
1: That was a conversation I've never heard on a podcast before. Ever. <laughs> So Ever. thank you Good guys life. very much for being original and interesting and having opinions.
2: So I am not going to FinCon, but uh, uh. Who goes to FinCon. <laughs> What's that, uh. on that? What's that all about? Come
4: to FinCon. You
1: can still go. You can still go. It's so much
4: fun. Cool people it's like here. us will be there in DC. So I miss that sometimes. Also, don't miss living in the middle of nowhere. Love this big city life. It's great. (laughs) Even though I just spent $9 on tolls to spend two hours in traffic today, and that was a good day.
3: That was a good day.
1: (laughs) Sounds sounds wonderful, Gwen. Sounds wonderful.
2: I know. I'm really selling it, right? it fits you you're hey you're in the city of fincon so you got something figured out you got this right yeah why do you think i moved to dc
1: that would not stop just,
3: gwen she would go to fincon yeah. even if it was in greece yeah are you just going to keep moving to wherever the next city for fincon is <laughs> <laughs> no
2: <laughs> no and you can guys i add one round. final thing One final thing. I'm I'm really digging the cat hair on Gwen's microphone. I think we're cat hair buddies. I've got some cat hair on my
4: (laughs) I can't help it. He just brushes up against it, and I can't do anything about
2: it. It's the worst. Well, mine looks just as bad, but I only noticed it by looking at yours.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You learn something important on the What's Up Next podcast every time.
4: He's not happy that I woke him up to do this.
3: He's grumpy.
4: (laughs) But this face... This face is worth it. Worth cat hair everywhere.
3: It mm, looks like a lot of it, too.
4: <laughs> yeah, you know, he's...
3: Wow. Oh, like a 20-pound cat.
4: Yeah. <laughs> he's 15, but yeah, <laughs> nice. he's a big kitty. Very nice. Big
0: fluffy kitty.
3: And Vincent, uh, just introduce yourself, how you feel comfortable, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
0: Hi, my name is Vincent from Total Life Freedom, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. I said that wrong. I... I Wondered
4: it. (laughs) What's up next? You need the creative people to spout off the crazy what ifs, what if we strap through rockets together and blast it off into space? And then you need other people who are your engineering, you know, practical implementation people to figure out how to put those ideas into action. So I think there's room for everybody in our society.
2: You just described my marriage. (laughs) There it is.
3: With the rockets part or
4: what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are fireworks, Paul Sunday. fireworks. Yeah.